And now, from the dark corners of the internet, where the exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the beer flows steady, it's Paul's Security Weekly. This interview is sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, the creators of the next generation firewalls, helping you enforce network security policies based on applications, users, and content. Visit them on the web at www.paloaltonetworks.com. And by the SANS Institute, the most trusted source for cybersecurity. Wow, wow, I'm so sorry, SANS. I said cyber. Um, so anyway, and by the SANS Institute, the most trusted source for computer security training, certification, and research. Visit sans.org to learn more. And by Tenable Network Security, the creators of Nessus, world's best vulnerability scanner. Check out the new Nessus Enterprise and Nessus Enterprise Cloud. Engage your IT department in the vulnerability management process today. And, <clears throat> and by Black Squirrel, pen test networks from your browser. Exploit the limits of network security through just a browser. Have a Chrome exploit in your toolkit? Good, but for the rest of us, there's Black Squirrel. Visit blacksquirrel.io for more information. Now, fire up a packet capture, pour yourself a beer, and give the intern control of your botnet. Here's your host, a man who needs no introduction but needs a stiff drink. Paul Asadorian. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Paul's Security Weekly, episode 393 for Thursday, October 30th, 2014. Jack, I'm so glad you wore your Halloween costume. That's that's right. I'm a As creepy old man. <laughs> <laughs> Almost don't need a costume for that, Jack. That's uh, damn right. <laughs> Excited to be here tonight on the lines via Skype. We've got Mr. Joff Thayer. Joff, welcome. Oh, good day, Paul and Jack. Yeah, I, I tell you, the kids are going to come to your door, Jack. Bing bong, and the mothers are going to go run away, run, run away fast. Run. <laughs> good evening, folks. Carlos <laughs> Perez. Snickers. I believe Carlos Perez is back with us. Yep. How's Happy to be here. Sorry for delay. Having a bit of a thunderstorm over here. You know that happens. It happens in sunny Puerto Rico when it's sometimes not so sunny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Tenable PVS contest closes tomorrow. So if you're listening to this after October 31st, uh, you should have already submitted. In any case, check out the SteelCon competition. Enter to win a security tube training course. You must write documentation for an open source project. Details can be found at the link in the show notes, which is, of course, at wiki.securityweekly.com. Um, what else do I want to announce? Class went well. I suck at life. And a public apology to those who were coming to see me speak today. There was a massive scheduling fail. And Chris is now managing my schedule. <laughs> that is the change that came about of that. Is that Chris will be taking on administrative duties. Yes. Wait, we not me. We talk not you, Chris. Not you, Chris. We'll introduce the you other next. Chris. Yes, you're a ghost up until this point. So 
Sorry, we should have told you that before the show. Again, you brought me on the podcast to invite me to manage your schedule. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what you're going to do. Congratulations, Chris. That's a promotion. <laughs> yes, I apologize about that. That was uh, really bad. Really bad. Oh, in other news, um, and I hope to be doing something locally to make up for that as well. I'm toying with free training. We can make that happen. More than happy to do I was, that. I was bummed to not be there two weeks ago and heckle you, but I had to run down to D.C. and miss that one. At the That's right. Local That's user, right. Local group. That meeting. one I actually made and showed up for. Yeah, I, I ended up having to drive down to D.C. to help set up for uh, mm. besides D.C., which was a good gig. But yeah, I missed that one. I missed that group. because That was, the, that was uh, one of the first uh, technology groups that... Uh, I connected with when I started having to do this nonsense for a living. <laughs> and that's the IT Pro? Yeah, it's now the Rhode Island IT Pro. They've been around what's a while. Their, they used to be a uh, What's Novel. their website? Is it? They used IT? to be a Novell Netware group, to put it in perspective, how long they've been around. Uh, yeah, that's what a is, little while. I want to give a plug for their, their IT-Pro.org is their that's website. It's a local group here Rhode in Rhode Island. Rhode Island IT Pro Group. And they're uh, Pro Group, mostly yeah. small business, but they've got a, a, a bunch of different perspectives on the world and just a good bunch of people that uh, Their meetings are pretty cool. I mean, they bring in informative, other than yeah. me, they bring in informative speakers yep. Yep. and uh, they give away free books in every meeting and it's just a nice bunch of people. Yeah, it's, it's a good bunch of people, with. and they're uh, happy to, to help folks. And, uh, like and they're looking for more members. They want to increase attendance. Like, which is why I, I wanted to mention um, them on the show. Yeah, I, like I said, they were uh, one of the first groups that I got involved in when I ended <clears> up having to like really make stuff work, and they were extremely helpful, and uh, that's kind of how I got into all this community stuff. It's like, wow, these people have been really helpful. I found something kind of cool. Do you want to know what I found? It's like, yeah, let's share what we know. And yeah. uh, that sort of set the tone for what I've done for the past, uh, well, longer than I care to admit. Um, well, I'm happy to admit that the uh, sharing information thing is uh, continues to be a trend. Yeah. And uh, so there's some a lot of job openings. If you're here in Rhode Island, actually, we're looking for some people to do some stuff. So if you want to be involved with Security Weekly, send me an email, paul at securityweekly.com, and uh, let's talk. There's a lot of open positions. Why did I get that? No, it's .com. We're still confused about the email cutover, which is after the show, I'll be giving a presentation on how our email conversion went. So for those that are interested in converting email accounts on Google Apps for Business. We're going we're gonna to whiteboard that. We're going to whiteboard that for everyone. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Uh, so yeah, paul at securityweekly.com. Please send me email. There's all kinds of positions that we have open. Not like that, Jack. <laughs> I'm, I'm just picturing the Security Weekly Kama Sutra. Speaking of open positions, there's some open positions at Tenable Network Security. You can go to tenable.com forward slash careers. Specifically, there is a product marketing manager for Nessus position and a senior product marketing manager for Nessus position. Two open positions there as well. So Nessus Ninja, who can not only communicate with your network, but with the network of people. Right. Um, is uh, that's it? Yeah, it'd be interesting. Because um, and there's other open positions as well, but those are the two are, that are. There are a couple of yeah, other to highlight are, this um, week. They're quote, yeah, we're growing, we're growing like mad. Absolutely, and uh, we're uh, it's a great we're place to work. I've been there five and a half years. Damn, you're old. I am old now. <laughs> I am officially old. I, I yeah, I've been there not quite three and a half now. Yeah, but it's it, changed a little bit. How many people were there when you joined? 95. Where are we so, now? 414? 400 420? plus. Yeah. Something like that. 
So. Anyway, lots of exciting opportunities there. <sighs> um, and Paul and I work remote, so you don't have to see us every day in a cubicle. That's just right. In case and you were terrified by that prospect, there we are, do work remote. You can work remote. Sometimes uh, the jobs don't always say that, so don't let that put you off. Yeah, so. I mean, some jobs need to be in the office, obviously. Right. But uh, the office is Columbia, so Columbia, if Maryland. If that's the only thing that's holding you back, by all means, contact myself or Jack and yeah, apply. Yeah, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you know what? Um, I double down on that for anybody interested in the, in this particular industry. Actually, um, you can work from pretty much anywhere. Yep. Get the right people. Um, let's see. I, I haven't been home in a month. Yes, Chris Crowley's with us, who hasn't been home in a month. He has 15 years of industry experience managing and securing networks. Currently, an independent consultant in the Washington D.C. area. His work experience includes penetration testing, computer network defense, incident response, and forensics analysis. Chris. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Chris is also a fabulous sand, certified SANS instructor. We just missed each other out in Las Vegas. That's um, right. Yeah, so Chris, tell us. I was teaching us. 575. You were, uh, you were teaching your, your class on uh, embedded devices. That's right. Uh, Chris, tell us how you got your start in information security. Um, so I was actually working at um, Tulane University years ago and uh, doing operations Basically, all these students kept hacking stuff, so I had to figure out how, how to deal with it. Um, at the same time, it was um, basically spam coming in. This was sort of like the uh, the dawn of the spam era. So set up uh, anti-spam filters, set up things to deal with uh, the stuff that nobody wanted. And then within about a few years, it was uh, 95% of the mail that was coming in that we were dropping Basically, had to do incident response and all sorts of different things. Um, you know, FBI showed up one day and was like, "Hey, you guys got a uh, whole bunch of computers over there in one department. We need to grab them." So, helped with that. That's pretty much how I got started. <clears throat> Very cool. Um, so, tell us about some of the SANS classes uh, that you're teaching, Chris. Well, so I actually teach mostly in the pen test curriculum. I teach 504 incident response uh, and uh, incident handling and hacker techniques. I teach everyone the 560 should, everyone should take that class. class. Everyone should take that class at least twice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> seriously. Or, or you take it, and then five years later, you take it again just to right. uh, brush up to on brush things because stuff agree. changes. The class that I teach most of the time is the uh, 575 mobile device pen testing. I occasionally um, am teaching now the um, 585 mobile device mobile forensics class mm -hmm. and then i also teach a um a one day that i'm the course author for and it's uh, actually managing the incident response team i'm splitting that to a two day so nice. as of uh hopefully um orlando 2015 that will that class will expand to a two-day class and add a lot more interactive and exercise stuff right now it's just me prattling on for six hours which no surprise people uh people don't seem to like they want to have a little respite from that so right that's what I do for SANS. Cool. So um, how did you get started in mobile device security? You know, it was interesting. Uh, you know, several years back, I was doing a bunch of stuff in Blackberries, just where I was working at the time, which is a big federal government agency. Uh, we had a lot of Blackberries, a lot of uh, Blackberry issues. And so we started working on that. And then that was uh, around the time where basically the executive team started getting interested in iPads. So it was really the, uh, the original BlackBerry um, platform and then um, iPads that drove me into mobile. And it was really challenging when I uh, started working on iPads because I didn't have direct drive access to anything. 
So I was using uh, you know, different tools in order to be able to figure out what was actually on the devices and wasn't particularly easy. Then um, after a little while, I was talking with uh, Josh Wright at Sands, and he said that they had a, uh, a class that he was authoring, and they were looking for somebody to actually specialize in, uh, in teaching that. So because of, because of that iOS experience that I had and the, uh, the BlackBerry platform stuff that I had done previously, started moving into that. And it's just, just been that way since. I mean, it's obviously, uh, you know, a, an area where there's a tremendous amount of development right now. And, you know, nobody's without a smartphone. And I think that most people in the world eventually are not going to have computers. They're just going to have a smartphone. They're going to have a tablet. And that's about all they got. It seems like... As far as compute devices. It seems like right now that mobile falls into an interesting category for a lot of organizations where they've got so many other problems that tackling the mobile issue is kind of further down on the list. How, how do you address that kind of mindset? As obviously you teach the class, you must feel strongly that it should be higher up on people's list, but I kind of feel like it's not. Yeah, um, what I find is happening to a lot of people, um, the IT professionals or who I see in my class have um, been tasked with coming into the class to figure out what they need to do because their organization has basically already purchased an MDM solution or an EMM solution or a BYOD solution or whatever the hell you want to call it. A lot of buzzwords it's, in there, Chris. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I don't, I don't <laughs> no, even know no, what they cool. mean, but basically, you know, they've purchased some solution to actually address the mobile devices and then they don't know what this stuff can do. And then they send somebody from IT. They're like, okay, um, you seem like you're super busy and tend to get things done. So now you need to go and like figure out what we're going to do with mobile devices. Because as of right now, Everybody's happy that they can use their phone, but we're kind of concerned that maybe there's a whole bunch of mobile uh, data on these mobile devices that we don't know about. So that's pretty much what I'm saying is that you have to um, fix it after the fact, which is sort of the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, most organizations have already deployed, and then you're now trying to go back and resolve the issue. So but how so do you, you actually prioritize it? Yeah, I find, I, I find that the best way to do it, um, just as a, a quick win, is to try to get a couple people in the executive um, team to allow you to take a look at the uh, content of a few mobile devices, even if you give them a demo one and say, hey, just take this mobile device, right? Don't use it as your primary personal stuff because I'm really not interested in seeing all, any of that, right? But just take this mobile device and use it at the coffee shop and look at some stuff and do a few things and take it for about two weeks and just check it out. Then give it back to me after two weeks and let me show you what I found about what you did. And then they start to realize all the content that's on these devices. So uh, that's no, it's, a really it's great not exercise, always that you can get yeah. that individual to, to be so participatory in the uh, demonstration component. But maybe sometimes you have, to, you have to prove the point before they'll allow you to actually um, get in there and do more configuration. Another thing that I find is um, really important is to talk about the mobile applications that a lot of people are installing on devices um, and then actually show the flaws that are present and the amount of data that's being leaked out of these devices, demonstrate that. And then all of a sudden you get the opportunity to um, present a um, application assessment program or get involved in some sort of at least double checks um, and say, okay, there's no like red flag behavior on these applications before we start installing them on the people who work on the phones for the people who work for us. Now, so you um, can you know, go all get contacts, um, all the location information, all the emails are potentially at risk. So you can go get an MDM and then you're fine, right? Is that I see a lot of people who just purchase an MDM 
with the mindset of, oh, well, we just need to figure out how to tweak this thing and then we'll be all set. And they don't have the appropriate policy and not mm -hmm. like I'm a huge fan of, you know, developing policy, but it's actually the bedrock for all the things that we end up doing. And they don't have the, uh, the technical understanding of um, what data is present and what risks are actually associated with these devices. So it's just a big educational process because these are, these are just compute devices that are basically unsecure that have access back into the corporate information stores. So, Chris, what, what tools exist for organizations to identify malware on mobile devices and also applications that want to do evil things or malicious things on mobile devices? So it's interesting, depending upon the platform. Um, so, so iOS, for the most part, um, you're not going to have malware per se. Um, mm -hmm. with, the, with the application code signing scenario, um, if, if, you, if Apple has not authorized a particular application, there's, it's not going to run. So Macs Mac don't get viruses. I mean, that's have a, what we're saying. Uh, if you have a jailbroken iOS device, um, then all bets are off with that regard because jailbreaks essentially mm -hmm. disable the code signing capability of the, uh, of the iOS platform. So um, really the best thing for organizations to do when they're dealing with iOS devices is if there is a jailbreak that's discovered on that platform, essentially to pull all the corporate information back off of that. Yeah, off all of bets are off. Yep. You know, so that's, that's, a, that's unfortunately kind of an arms race in terms of the mm -hmm. jailbreak detection scenario because jailbreak detection fundamentally depends on the um, operating system to provide information to whatever application it is that you're running in order to do the jailbreak detection. So kind of a cat and mouse game there between the people who are developing things like XCON to mask um, jailbreaks and the people who are um, trying to discover that the device is actually jailbroken. Now, go ahead. Did you yeah, I was just going to say, so if you have a jailbroken device, can you like remove the management software that you would or apps that you would put on there that ties it back to the MDM? Certainly. If you have a jailbroken device, you could, you could disable that um, software. You also could do things where you could allow the software to run, mm -hmm. but then um, manipulate the software while it's running. You know, so Cydia Substrate and some of the other tweaks that are available through the um, you know, um, um, Cydia App Store will actually change the behavior of the management software to simultaneously allow you to have access to the to whatever resources that mdm facilitates or the byod container facilitates but then um, disable the component of that software in order to make it so that it doesn't realize that the uh, device is jailbroken so does that also mean i can manipulate apps like pandora to let me skip as many songs as i want <laughs> that's that's one I, example you know snapchat <laughs> to make it so that you can uh you know, Snapchat to make it so that I can download all the, uh, yeah. the pictures that are coming through, even though I'm not supposed to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. No notification being sent back. Um, you know, the, the opportunity for tweaks is, uh, is, is pretty substantial. And it said, um, essentially, when you've jailbroken that device, you can manipulate the, uh, the running process memory. So, gotcha. That's awesome. So now what about Android? So Android is, uh, is another story. They're, um, actually, the Google Play Store... The software itself will do um, malware detection. There mm -hmm. are a, a number of applications that are set up in order to detect malware. It's actually, the statistics um, say that a, at least 95% of the known malware for mobile platforms is targeted at Android devices. Um, and, and a lot of that is due to the fact that the, um, the APKs that get delivered for Android devices 
while by default, Android is configured not to allow uh, stuff coming from third parties, mm -hmm. um, it's very easy for the user to just decide that they want to download an APK from anywhere and install it. And so even um, you know, the Google Play application, as it's going to install this APK, may warn the user and say, look, this is, this is not a good thing uh, to install. Actually, I, I love it. Every time I restart one of, my, uh, one of my rooted Android devices, it says, hey, this towel root application, you really should remove this because we think it's bad. Right? So it warns me every time and it says this application's um, not desirable. We know that it's potentially, um, potentially problematic. But I can still just override that behavior. And so um, Android, we have antivirus to, to detect that. But um, most of the antivirus applications are not running truly at the, um, at the platform or operating system level. They're running more within an application space. So it's a difficult thing for them to really protect the mobile devices um, for Android platform because the antivirus doesn't necessarily have the same sort of um, low-level control um, that you would need in order to really uh, protect it. And so what's happening is a lot of the, the uh, platforms are moving to using SE Android. Um, so Knox, um, as an example, Samsung Knox is essentially leveraging um, the SE Android capabilities in order to provide more control to the, uh, to the platform. So that's an example of something that is going down the path of giving uh, control to a, um, a management provider who can then say, okay, this is what's authorized and this is what is not authorized. What, um, about, what about Windows? Windows, Windows yeah. Do people use Windows? People don't use Windows Phone, do they? I have a Windows Phone. I know, oh. I know at least one person who uses a Windows Phone. It's me. I actually own one Windows Phone. Is that what you use as your phone? No. Oh. <laughs> you got me excited. I, isn't it like so. the most secure platform because no one really uses it? I, I agree with that. I mean, in terms of what we know about, in terms of uh, in terms of security, um, unrestricted software, so jailbreak, um, malware, root, whatever you know, any of those things, we just don't uh, we just don't have it for Windows Phone, um, which I say is a bit of being damned by faint praise mm -hmm. because basically no one's developing a malware for Windows Phone. I think next year, I think twenty fifteen, um, we'll start to see some more of that, but we haven't seen it yet. Mm. Interesting. Um, so uh, let's take a step back for a moment. What can we do as users to help protect ourselves on our various, let's say, iOS and Android, right? Yeah, so, what can we yeah, do? So if we kind of constrain it to that iOS, unless you're, um, unless you're using the device in order to do um, assessment of applications, um, basically don't jailbreak your device. Um, the major and primary protection that iOS provides is the um, Apple code signing, um, and that basically protects users from having malware run on their uh, devices. So iOS, if you're, if you're going down that path, Apple is taking care of a substantial amount of the security for you. Now, you have to give up some control if you actually go down that path, because there are things that Apple doesn't want you to do, and that's just the end of it. Mm -hmm. So if you are, are doing it for iOS, the, the primary thing that as a user you can do is not jailbreak your phone. Gotcha. Right? Um, for Android, the primary thing that you can do is to make it so that you do not install APKs from anywhere outside of the Google Play Store. Um, that's a simple precaution that will save you a tremendous amount of headache. 
And if you are thinking about installing something from outside of that Play Store, what I would do is actually do an assessment of the application before you install it on your device. We've seen a couple of vulnerabilities in, um, in older APIs of, uh, of Android applications. So API 16 and prior, we actually have a, uh, a flaw that we know about as the, uh, the web view add JavaScript interface flaw. Um, so even if you installed those legitimate apps, um, once that was actually uh, discovered, you still have an opportunity for information loss and um, remote command and control of your device if someone um, leverages that particular flaw. At the time that that came out, I think it was around June of 2013, 50% um, of the top 1,000 apps in, uh, in the um, Google Play Store were actually potentially vulnerable to this particular flaw. So um, in that case, it's an uh, update. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, with Android, updates are, uh, are not always available to users for the platforms that they're dealing in. So if you're going to purchase a phone, and say you want to run Android, uh, or even any phone, really. I mean, do you go get the Google Nexus phone where you're, you can update the operating system directly, or do you roll the dice and get one from a provider? So um, I think that if you're looking to minimize your exposure, you go ahead and go with the, uh, the Nexus line because that gives you the best opportunity to be on the most up-to-date operating system. And Open Handset Alliance is providing updates very quickly for, uh, you know, for the, the Nexus phones. The problem is the majority of the other phones provided by um, providers don't get updates very often. Right? But now, so, you get, do you get support for the phone? You get support from the phone from the provider. So, like, what if you have a problem with your phone? You can't call Google, right? There's no number. Uh, yeah, so, so if you have a problem with the, uh, with the Nexus phone... Um, I think that that actually goes back through Google. So if mm. you buy it directly from them, yeah. if you buy an unrestricted Nexus phone, then right. I think that any sort of phone support goes back from them. If you buy a Nexus, you know, whatever phone from um, a provider. You know, any of the big providers, then you go back to the provider for that. Now, if you buy a Nexus from a provider, can you up apply the updates or do you have to get the provider's updates? So it actually, uh, it actually depends um, on the provider. Mm. I, I have all the Nexus devices that I've purchased, I've purchased directly yeah. um, for, the, for the sole reason of not having anybody interfering with that stream of updates with me. Mm -hmm. The problem is for a lot of people, the, the, cost of, the cost difference there is several hundred dollars. Right, so you buy an underwritten phone from your provider, and it's you know two hundred bucks. You go and look at the same phone straight from uh, straight from the Nexus or you know um, Android Experience, and it's five hundred or six hundred dollars. So people are looking at that, saying, "Wait a minute, same phone. Um, I just have to sign a two-year contract over here, um, or I could buy the the phone from Google and then not have a contract." but still pay the same amount, why wouldn't I just go ahead and um, you know, get it directly from the provider? So it, this is one of my big um, yeah. complaints with Android. By the way, I'm an Android user, right? I mean, I, I actually like Android. That's what I use as, um, as you probably know, I, I have a lot of phones. But as my, as my primary personal phone, I use Android because I actually want to support it. I think it's a good thing. I like the open source effort. But at the same time, it has a limitation. And so my Nexus 5 that I have that I use as a, as a work phone, I always have it up to date. As soon as stuff comes out, it gets its updates. My other primary phone 
it lags. So, I mean, I'm on like, I'm still on, uh, you know, Android 4.3 on that particular device, which is a pain, right? And there's no reason for it except for right. um, contention among the participants in the Open Handset Alliance, which well, to me is the biggest point of frustration um, with Android. Have you noticed on the uh, Google uh, products you buy directly, though, that they uh, sort of stop pushing out updates a month or two before uh, the next model is released? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so most of the time they're better until it's time to buy a new machine. Yeah. Although, although I, while I have seen that, I still get the, um, I have a Nexus four, I have an old generation Nexus seven tablet. I have a newer generation Nexus seven tablet. Um, I get the update on all of them. So while, so if you lag a little bit, so um, it if, actually still right. comes back around and gets the update. Yeah. So if you bought the most expensive Android that your carrier offered three years ago, uh, it's a safe bet that if you're relying on the carrier, you're uh, let's just say you're not running four four or anything. You're not. You're not running <laughs> the latest one, which is which is really unfortunate, and it's going to cause a lot of problems for the long term. Because honestly, um, you know, if you think about it worldwide. People are not refreshing their phones every uh, 12 months, which is, you know, on average what you get for support for a carrier underwritten phone um, in terms of updates. Sometimes you don't even get that. Um, but most people's refresh cycles are every two years. But worldwide, we're looking at a tremendous number of vulnerable phones. Um, and if, if someone were to be truly malicious and try to do something that was incredibly damaging to everybody, to the worldwide networks... If I were going to target a platform and do that, it would be Android, right? Because you got all these phones that are still running two, three. I so, mean, I'm, that, not, I'm not talking about exclusively in the U.S. I'm talking about worldwide. Yeah, there are a tremendous number of vulnerable phones still out there. So, I mean, that's kind of a, almost a an endorsement to get an iPhone. Yeah, except wow. then you go to the baseband issues and the man carrier level management tools that are completely insecure. Um, bypass all of this at a deeper level so so it's an endorsement in um in a way for iphones if you want to transfer the responsibility for your security over to a third party and not really participate in it very much if you don't want to actually watch it if you don't want to have to look at the apps if you don't want to do those things then a lot of that is taken care of on the iphone platform and you know if someone were to ask me just generically um i have this generic company we want a new mobile platform what would you suggest? Unless I hear like a lot of other details, I mean, the de facto standard for a lot of companies would be an iPhone platform yeah. because there's so much restriction on it. It's you know, so, and, yeah. so, and so Apple Chris, only has like basically five or six devices that they have to worry about securing. Yeah. Right. Now, it, my, it also, uh, just my, yeah. my thought there for, for a lot of the folks listening, uh, those of us who like to play with stuff, there's the phone that we want. And then there's the phone for friends and family and coworkers, yeah. Yeah. and it's you know it's like uh, it's like when you tell your siblings to get a Mac because you don't want to support you don't want to support them on anything but a Mac, right? right. So just just get an iPhone, really. Just get. It. But yeah, I saw you you got that Samsung Note thing, and it's big and it does all. Yeah, it do, yes, it does. Get it? Get an iPhone. Mm. You want a big yeah. one? Get a six plus. Just, just to, yeah, right. It's a, it's an easy choice, and so the other side of that is that that's very generic advice. But if someone were to tell me more details and give me more information, you know, I may I may lean more towards Windows Phone for uh, for an organization that has you know that sort of deployment, um, and they have very specific needs. 
Um, I think that Windows Phone is actually um, a decent platform for security purposes. Um, the big the big downside for Windows Phone currently is the user acceptance. People really like iPhones. They really like the user experience of the iPhones and those tablets. People right now don't really like the, the Windows Phone, um, even though there's comparable security controls in place for Windows Phone and for, um, and for iOS. There is a, an avenue of additional code base that you have to deal with um, on Windows Phone because what you've got is you've got third parties, uh, both manufacturers and mobile providers who have the opportunity to insert additional code into the Windows Phone um, where you don't have as much of an opportunity for that on iOS. Um, and, but then, as you say, and, and rightly so, Jack, is that with Android, Android is, is liberty, right? Android has, gives you ultimate latitude. So for those of us who want to change things, who want to dig in, who want to have a tremendous amount of control and insight into what's going on, Android phone is a really good choice for them. Yeah, Chris, I'm torn. I, I have a Note 3, and I want to maintain my big screen. And I don't know if I want to go with the new Nexus or an iPhone 6 Plus, or the Note 4. What are your thoughts there? This is completely self-serving, by the way. <laughs> oh, jeez, Paul. That, uh, <laughs> I, well, I, I, I said for, it was self-serving. And I'm, and I'm not positive um, exactly what you like, but in terms, of the, in terms of the big screen, I'd go with the iPhone. I think that, I think that it's, it's slick, what I've seen of it. It's really nice. The, the feel is good. And, and you can fold it and like, put it in it, your pocket, which is awesome. Of. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, say that again. You know, I said you can, I, I you can got, fold it and put it in your I, I pocket. I can't help but point out the irony that, that I've been sitting back here and thinking about, and that is the malware targeting of Microsoft in the desktop era had been going on for years because they, they had the market share. They, were, they cornered the market, and, and the, comp the model is completely flipped on its end now. You know, Windows, is, Windows Mobile is catching up, and, and, and the malware uh, marketplace has moved over to the uh, largely the Android space. So it's, it's really an interesting interesting world which we live in you know crime is crime of opportunity yeah, i but, guess is the the stating the obvious Joff, uh, well Joff, you gotta you understand that um windows mobile is catching up i don't think that's true yeah well, well I mean, that's probably a little bit optimistic but yeah <laughs> Joff, you gotta understand that you know windows owning the desktop market is like sony owning the vhs market right now and that's the the kind of the parallel between the two well yes i thanks paul i understand that but captain obvious <laughs> and one question how do you feel about google kind of not being so open when it comes to vulnerabilities. Many times researchers will go to them, hey, we have this vulnerability. Would you guys patch it? Um, they patch it. There's no advisory. There's nothing in the release notes that say, hey, this vulnerability was patched. It was addressed. Uh, many times, uh, unless it has been public, then they kind of probably add it to a release note if, if they're not forced to. They kind of are even though it is open source, it's, they're not quite so open when it comes to when they address vulnerabilities in the OS itself. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of that. It's, it's kind of like this. If I'm dealing with an open platform, I want openness, right? I mean, that's, that's why I like it, and that's what I want to support. And I don't want someone doing a bunch of uh, you know, backroom stuff on my open platform. So, so the, yes, that's frustrating. Um, it's definitely frustrating. But... I, I don't know how to change that, honestly. Um, there are a couple of things I'd like to change about Android. Um, that's one of them. A lot more, um, you know, like community direct um, engagement. Another thing 
that I'm sick of on Android, and there's no reason for it to still be there, is the fact that users cannot granularly control the permissions that they grant to applications. That drives me nuts. There's no reason on an open source, truly open platform that we can't have a, a, a toggle of like this particular app. I don't want it to turn my microphone on. Right now, it's an all-or-nothing choice on, yeah. uh, it on asks you application when it, permissions. It asks you when it installs it, right? It says, if you install this What's app, it's, it, it asks you on upon installation. If you install this app, it's going to have access to all that stuff, and then that's the last you can do about it. It's either install it or don't. That's your choice. Install right. it or don't, right? And, and that platform doesn't need to be like that, right? And in fact, in um, Android 4.2, there were a bunch of hidden options for applications permissions that were actually going the direction of allowing the per permit, um, permission per application toggles. And um, they went away from it. And that's really unfortunate. That's a big beef that I have with Android. Because for an open platform, that's what we should have. For someone who really advocates you know, privacy and security and uh, control by the individual of their own data, that should be present. And it's just not. I wonder if it is since they are actually an art advertising company they're going like well if we provide this then they can block the information we can gather from them from which we make money from i i agree i think that that has something to do with it and i think that the um the other part of it is the folks um within the the environment it's not just the open handset alliance but they have a bunch of vendors who are also who are also in there um making decisions so i think that's a huge factor and influence on it has anybody taken a look at uh, McAfee's devasive? John McAfee, um, say what you will, uh, but John McAfee has released his uh, privacy tool for Android. It's called something like devasive, and I've uh, I've installed it. I really haven't dug into it too much, but it uh, you know it's, it sets off alarms every time the microphone or the camera or you know wireless or Bluetooth kick on or a variety of other things. And there's some granular controls I haven't. Uh, really played with yet, but I was wondering if anybody has taken a look at that. It seems to be, um, even if it works perfectly, it's bolting on something that, that should be built in, I think, but it may be a stopgap until we can get uh, Android where it should be. But uh, it's yeah, not, that's that, not an endorsement, that, um, by the way. It's I don't you know, know yet. That's good for the, for the um, more security-aware users. Right. Not, yeah, but I don't think that it's not a for your little for sister the, or big brother or whatever. Right? Yep. But isn't that the evolution that these things tend to follow anyway? I mean, if you think back again into the PC market in the early days, the the security defense products were were for initially targeted at the more security aware users and then filtered out into the general marketplace. So I think there's a there's a precedent there that that uh, is is potentially being followed in the mobile marketplace too. Very cool. Uh, any uh, further questions for? Oh, Chris, uh, our uh, our Chris has a question for you, Chris. The One Plus. What are your thoughts on the One Plus? The which one? It's called One One Plus One. One Plus One. One Plus dot net. It's a 2014 flagship killer. Is what it says. It's a phone, apparently. Our Chris, do you want to give us some background on that? Sure. So it's it's the flagship killer phone. Um, 
it runs Android and Cyogen mod. Uh, it's yeah, about- I think it's referring to the OnePlus One, the Android phone that actually is coming out of Taiwan uh, from one of the companies over there. That is actually kind of like the Cyanogen mod official phone where they integrated some of the tech secure stuff into it. But at the same time, uh, if you look at the full disclosure mail list, there have been a, a bit of criticism about it. Yeah, so I, I actually haven't um, had a chance to assess that. There are actually several phones that seem like they're coming out now that are along those lines where it's like the um, the black phone from the Silent Circle folks. Yeah. There's this one, the OnePlus One. There, an, an, um, Samsung Knox is like a, more of a, a commercial version. There's the um, black phone from Boeing. There are a lot of security-focused Android um, telephones coming out. And I think that this is good, but I think it's going to take us a couple of years to really get through a lot of these flaws so that these phones that are security restricted android platform phones actually don't have stupid stupid flaws i mean the one that just came out um a a flaw announcement related to Knox, where there's basically a a recovery pin that allows you to um, recover the um the passcode that you use to encrypt the device that's actually stored in plain text on the on the phone so I think that while the there are a lot of people that are going in that direction to do to do the right thing, um, they're going to have growing pains, and it's not going to be good for the for the next six months to a year. Cool, <clears throat> Chris, are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Oh, I didn't. I didn't know I signed up for that. <laughs> Every, everyone does. It's in your agreement. I guess that's on. a yes. Yeah, it's three words to describe yourself. Um, red, um, perspicacious, and uh, adventurous. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Poison. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Adventures in Candyland. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Mm, first. Pick two celebrities to be your parents. Marilyn Chambers and um, Beyond Borg. Very cool. Chris, thank you very much for appearing on Security Weekly. I'm sure our paths will cross soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll catch up with you in the next one. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Good to meet you. Ciao. And with that, we're going to take a short break. Come back with the stories for this week. Welcome back to Security Weekly. The stories for this week is brought to you by Anapsis, the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at anapsis.com. And by Pony Express. Check out the community edition and turn your Nexus 7 into a lean, mean pen testing machine. For all those hard to reach places, there's Pony Express. Visit them on the web at ponyexpress.com. And by Black Hills Information Security, the leaders in penetration testing and active defense. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to request a quote today. And that brings us to our glorious stories 
of the week. Where do we want to begin with the stories of the week? Oh, ooh, let's go hacking with the oldies, Jack, since you're here. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Rob Vanderbrink called his post, except the link's broken in the show notes. It says hacking with the oldies. It's, it was on the ISC blog. That's what, I'm just, hacking with the oldies. That's right. That's what he called it. It was a dedication to Mr. Jack Daniel. Some new bugs in old code. I think that's been the theme of this year as we talk about stories for the entire year. Isn't that the theme of our entire industry? (laughs) Well, I mean, these are particularly old software bugs, right? I mean, the whole SSL thing and then the whole bash thing. And we've talked about several other ones that are old. The whole Telnet thing we talked about last week. And now we've got a nifty bugs in strings. CV 2014-84-85. Oh, this one is priceless, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> yeah. So what's the problem with string? I, I just... I haven't had a chance to really dig into these. I was going to rely on our illustrious I'm, panel to fill I'm in. I'm sure somebody can fill it in. But, but basically, uh, you think of strings as just doing search, but it's not isolated from being able to execute depending on which... What you're using. So... Strings can actually execute what's in the strings that it finds. Ooh, Wonderful. Wow. Yeah. And guess what? Forensics guys <laughs> use strings. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, <laughs> it's like the world's best reverse engineering tool. Look, look, strings is fabulous, but the fact that this exists, yikes, gives you pause, significant pause for concern. It certainly does. And W get has vulnerabilities as well. Ugh. Yeah. Sorry, I, I lost the post. Please continue, Jack. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, that was, so. that was, uh, it was an ancient, uh, so I, it takes forever to load, but that, yeah, the ISC storm, uh, ISC yeah. storm, the, the diary, um, strings bug. Oh, and that's a Michael Zalewski post so okay that would make sense and then the, the w get i think uh, hd found that one it I'm looks not like mistaken it. um just uh, and there's a metasploit module of course uh, man how was he looking for bugs in w get kind of interesting like are people saying i'm just going to go back through these old open source tools and find bugs now after um yeah, well, I mean, after what we've seen in the past year, it seems like a yeah, good idea to, like trend. to just go back and... We're just Paul, a- the more eyes, the more secure it is. That's right. Apparently not the case. <laughs> also, one has to remember a lot of this, a lot of these tools are written in very old C, C++ that has been patch and patch and yeah. monkey patch and Chicken wire and duct tape together throughout the years. Oh, Carlos, Carlos, you got to go easy on us. I mean, just because it's old doesn't mean it's bad, right? <laughs> no, no, no. It, uh, what I mean is sometimes frameworks change. And when you go like, hey, I have here 10,000 lines of code and the framework and the libraries have changed. Okay, let me do 
the refactoring of all of this code. Uh, no, let me just patch where it's failing to compile it. So what, what's reported in the blog is that uh, Strings uses the old, uh, um, an old common library called libbfd, uh, which detects executable formats and optimizes the extraction of text by looking at specific sections of the file. Presumably, they're parsing uh, the uh, the ELF format and only pulling out the stuff that's that's interesting, right? The the data section, perhaps the text, um, and um, that is the Achilles heel, apparently, as I understand it. Is that is that how you read it, Jack? Yeah. Yep. That's how I read it too. So, I mean, that's that's unfortunate uh, in that, you know, ironically, if strings were simpler, as in just a simple grep for ASCII data, um, it would not necessarily be vulnerable. But the fact it tries to be more intelligent is the uh, the very thing that makes it vulnerable, which is... Uh, I always get in trouble when I try to be intelligent, too, so I, I can sympathize. <laughs> I was about to say, that's many, many things downfall, right? <laughs> things people... You know, you try right. to be more intelligent, and whoops, there it goes, bites you in the, you know what? Yep. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Jack, That's did it. you, um, sorry, Joff. Yeah. Oh, no, go yeah. ahead, Paul. I was just going to say, Jack, did you pick up on the FTDI drivers, fake chips update from Microsoft? Yeah, just a, a little <sighs> bit more. They. I, I want to hear you guys rant about this, because I read it, I'm like, I, wow, I, Jack and Carl's are going to have a few. Yeah, I, I just, I, it's too bad Larry's not here again this week, because with all the embedded, you know, with the toys, but yes. Uh, so FTDI came out and basically said, yep, uh, we're protecting our intellectual property um, by screwing the end users who have no way of knowing what they've acquired for the most part. Uh, yep. And um, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and there's an event that uh, 1,700 people will be at next week somewhere, shall we say, a few some miles east of Seattle where... Issues with Microsoft patches, uh, breaking stuff are going to come up, and this one absolutely is going to come up with um, how did a Microsoft the the deadly thing here is it came through Microsoft update, or so Microsoft pushed out a patch since it was a driver update from FTDI and FTDI bricked people's gear, but um, Microsoft is the uh, was the vector for this bricking of hardware. Oh wow! Now, was this Microsoft or the chip manufacturer? So the FTDI? code came. My understanding is the code came from the the driver, the updated driver, came from the hardware manufacturer FTDI, but it was made available as a driver update through Microsoft Update. Yep. So FTDI yep. wrote the code. It was distributed via Microsoft's Update platform. So Microsoft's just a middleman in this case. Yeah, what happened is that they right. gave them the binary blob of the driver. Microsoft has always been getting drivers from them, so they trusted the vendor that the drivers were valid, that there were no issues with the driver. Probably the vendor has already provided in the past official hardware for their testing, so they tested with their official hardware. But once it was deployed, what it did is that anybody who actually had a bootleg uh Chip. version of this chip in their product uh, they detected that and they set the uh, USB ID to all zeros actually brick into the device because Windows cannot detect what type of USB device it is now 
my question is, does Microsoft just blindly take in these driver updates from these manufacturers with no validation in their code signing their driver updates? <laughs> not, not after this one, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what if this driver contains some sort of malware or malicious code in it? it How would Microsoft know? Microsoft, I, I assume, runs everything through their their test harnesses and something yeah but microsoft probably isn't i mean this is how they get caught on something you know they can't have the universal experience right there's got to be there are edge cases which is where they tend to get caught out um and this is a driver for hardware that's you know they they may not have you know hobbyist hardware attached to their their platforms and it's one of the challenges it's like a rant for a whole other day that requires like people who actually know what they're talking about instead of me. It's one of the challenges of doing all of your regression testing in virtualized environments. Mm-hmm. Not saying Microsoft does, but if you don't have actual hardware with, you know, the the mix. If you don't have, you know, let's pick on Dell, right? If you don't have Dell hardware where no two devices are the same, they're like effing snowflakes until you're into the server hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you don't, if you're not testing against physical boxes, you're going to miss stuff like this. And physical boxes with, you know, weird keyboards attached that have extra crap in them so that they remember things or, you know, keyboards with a docking station for a trackball or, or, you know, those beyond things, the way people actually use computers with with NAS devices or, um, I mean, you know, with a USB or Mm -hmm. Thunderbolt or whatever hardware attached with weird things attached with odd, odd audio and video drivers. You miss these things, and if you don't have your Focusrite or Presonus or M Audio mobile thing, you know uh, USB device attached, you'll never know that it it's not mm-hmm. compatible. Um, but this is actually going the next step and saying, you know the the thing is counterfeit. And I mean, how how do even distributors know? I mean, it's all coming out of I'm assuming either Taiwanese or more likely mm-hmm. Chinese factories. The counterfeit ones could be coming off the same assembly line on a different shift mm-hmm. and have different uh, signatures on them. I don't know. I'd be curious to see how Microsoft does security testing of signed drivers. You guys know? It's, it's going to be difficult. As Jack mentions, they're not going to be able to have every single piece of hardware out there for every driver that they actually support since they actually support so many thousands of devices right. out there. That's you know, the advantage of Windows. You can run it with anything. The problem also arises that when I get drivers from a vendor, let's say from Hewlett Packard or from Dell, uh, many times these vendors would actually provide hardware to Microsoft. Hey, here's the hardware for you to test against. So this vendor probably provided to them some serial to USB dongles and said, here's the hardware for you to test the drivers just to make sure that they behave the way that they need. What happened here is that the vendor broke the trust that right. they were assuming by Microsoft, and Microsoft got burned. And yep. my biggest worry is no, not so much about the bricking of the devices because they're. Let, let, let's be honest. They're, yeah, they're yeah. serial to USB dongles. Uh, it's not the end of the world. You can go to Best Buy and buy another mm-hmm. um, for ten dollars. Uh, what worries me is the degradation of trust in Windows Update, and what will this that's cost? Yeah. On top of everything else we've had in the past year and a half, that's yep. the real terrifying thing. Um, you know, I mean, I can, I can see that if you happen to be caught out in, you know, some bizarre processes, and when you say serial to USB, I start thinking about, 
you know, automated processes, you know, industrial control or, or, you know, I don't know about skaters, but, you know, things where your computer is controlling something uh, and it's designed for a serial interface. So I can see it making people have a bad day, but there are some devices can be recovered. As you said, you can go get another device. Um, but yeah, the, the loss of trust in Microsoft. And to, Paul, to your point about signing, you know, that's not really a factor because we know where the code came from, right? Yep, it's absolutely FTDI that gave us the shit code. Or I see. So code signing is just validating the, origin, not intent. Right. Gotcha. So, I mean, you know, you, you, that's what governments and clever bad people do yes. is sign software that does what they want it to do, not necessarily what the user wants it to do. I gotcha. And, so, and also, if you think about it, if Microsoft starts asking every single provider of drivers... Give me your code. I want to audit your code. Yeah, that wouldn't scale. That line is just going to get out of hand. Well, it makes you wonder, should should Microsoft consider splitting the uh, update model where, you know, hey, we're going to run Windows Update, but we're going to run it for our own drivers only and our own operating system. And, they and need we have a secondary thing, you know, that's, that is for our vendor-supplied drivers, which you can opt into or not. They do give you some control, but it's poorly explained, you know, what's critical versus what's important and what's optional. It needs to be, I think they need a much more granular and more clearly explained update process that says, you know, I want security updates for Windows that come from Microsoft. Yes, no. I want security updates for Microsoft software other than Windows that comes from Microsoft. Yes, no. You know, yeah, I want exactly. There needs to be a, 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 a clear Android distinction. Model. Right, right. right. You yeah, know, we, you know, really control. down yeah. to, uh, you know, because if you check the optional software, the next thing you know, you're running Silverlight or, God forbid, Link, oh. right? Uh, you know, next thing you know, Link's on your machine. <laughs> I love Kyle's reaction. <laughs> Oh my God! I've because got because I've been rebuilding all and a my Bing entire, bar and a Bing bar. bar. You get a Bing bar. You get a Bing bar. And you still see it in the optional downloads. Yeah. Oh, you can't. Well, because every time they put a new version of Silverlight and that Microsoft, if you're listening, which you're not, no, never, ever, ever do I want a Bing bar. Bing bar sounds like something <laughs> you go to Dairy Queen and get. Can I get a caramel? Bing bar? Oh, you're out. I'll take a cherry flavored Bing bar. Um, hey, it's just... hey, Jack, it's like getting an LLC in uh, in, in Delaware, right? <laughs> Can I have that Bing bar to go? Bing bar? No, I don't want a Bing bar. I don't want the. And uh, the the challenge is that uh, I get it. I mean, from fatigue, you're like, oh, fine, just install everything and leave me alone. But then you end up with Silverlight, and then you have Silverlight Vulns or. You have Link, and shit runs all the time for no apparent reason, and um, I think a uh, uh, an Ubuntu install CD is the only way to uninstall Link from a Windows machine these days. Uh, uh, um, uh. I think it's easier to take explorer.exe out of a Windows box than Link these days. You know what? It's I call this the toaster effect, right? Our, our user population look at it as if it's a toaster. They want it to make toast. They don't care. They're just going to say yes, next, next, finished. That's it, right? So given that, um, you know, where does this responsibility lie? I mean, you, you either separate it out and make it granular and force people to make the choice, or you let them just click next, next, finished, right? And it appears that the, uh, the latter uh, is the preferred option right now. 
And one of the things that worries me is that Microsoft has actually pulled patches and reissued them at least in the last four patch cycles that they have gone through. And that is something that really, really, really worries me because what is happening is people out there that are patching stuff. I've seen discussions well the, where they're saying, oh, I used to patch in two days or I used to patch in one day. Now I'm going to wait 30 days. And many times, a lot of these patches are for stuff for attacks that are already happening out there. So now you kind of open a wider window of 30 days that you're exposing yourself because you don't want to set up a test environment or you don't have the resources to do it. But many times it's just that they don't want to go through the work of doing it. So, you know, how many environments truly actually have a test environment, first of all? Um, you know, in fact, some... I've seen some that when they don't have the budget in a couple of government organizations, what they do is that they sell a couple of users inside of the, uh, uh, in their environment and they say, okay, guys, you're going to be my guinea pigs. Uh, do you volunteer? Yes. So you have one lady in a guy in, over here, another guy in IT, another guy in somewhere else, and you push patches to them first and then for the next few days, you ask, hey, did everything went well? Cool. Or you get a batch of people that use specific Dell model. The other guys are using HP. And you select a couple of users in your group, and you have them test those patches first. And you can actually go by without having that big budget. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good hybrid model uh, and a very good point, Carlos. Uh, I've seen... I've actually worked in environments that did a very similar thing, and uh, I, I think that's a, a great way to go um, to sort of meet the middle point there, where you can uh, select a subset of your population. and And let's let's face it in the in the Windows Microsofty world uh, with group policy, that's completely possible to to pull off um, quite effectively. So, um, yeah, good, very, very good point. Symantec released an intelligence report. Things are bad. That's pretty much the. Oh, uh, all right. Uh, some, Wait, if you want, are we supposed to end on a happy note? I'm just wondering. All right, I I can't even do it justice. But as uh, as all of our listeners know, you know there there are uh, there are other security podcasts, and a few of them are good. Um, leave it at that. <laughs> One of the one of the good ones is uh, our friend Pat Gray's uh, Risky Business podcast, and uh, uh, last week uh, he updated his Macs and had some kind words for Apple. Oh, uh, he had some horribly <laughs> scathing words for Apple. <clears throat> but another thing on yep. that show was the guy's story about uh, Semantic, uh, completely unrelated to this. But they used uh, Semantics, uh, Message Labs, uh, anti-spam, and, and other services. And um, they had another project working with Semantic, which got put on hold. And so since Semantic didn't deliver, their project manager said, don't bother paying the bill since we haven't done it yet. And the accounting people saw that it hadn't been paid. And so they turned off all of their cloud services and broke uh, the global corporate email and said that they had sent them an email and it turned out they had sent emails to five or six people, four or five of which got compl got rejected, and one was filtered by their own spam system and went into the spam bucket rather than being delivered. 
So they failed at sending it out, um, and they failed at answering, and they just they just semanticed it. I mean, just semantic, semantic. I'm not even going to address this. Yeah, you want to know what's so based on that story? You know what a giant risk on the internet is? Trusting fucking semantic. <laughs> oh, nice. Wow. Really, because we've turned to you for stability, reliability, and security. And you screw us. Thank you very much. Semantic. And anybody who's surprised oh, yeah. by that behavior has not dealt with semantic before. Jack, is there anything to be said by them stating that there were 600 vulnerabilities disclosed in September, the highest number so far in 2014 and the second highest in 12 months? Is there, any, is there anything interesting we can glean from those numbers? Do we have to look at them over a longer period of time? Is that just because there's more software? Is there more people looking? Is there more of both? Is there more awareness about vulnerabilities? It, is there a higher rate of reporting? Like all those factors yeah, come in, it's and I'm like, like how, any, what do I do, do with that do data? Do any of them matter? You know, you, all right. So we've got vulnerabilities. Are these remote code? Are these you know what level There's of skill? Yeah. You know, is is this uh, widely deployed software? Right. Uh, Too many variables for me to make usage of that <laughs> statistic for me. Uh, just uh, watching the Twitter feed. It's, <laughs> Jared uh, points out, I mentioned Semantic on Security Weekly. The video feed crashes. Coincidence? Um, <laughs> no. Anything <laughs> evil, um, you know, it's, it's uh, software. You know, Semantic has taken over from CA is where good software goes to die, although they have competition for that. But uh, Yes, I think that the number, just a raw number, you know, 600, I don't know what that means. Is it? Is it good? Bad? Is it? Is it? What do we act it, upon? Finding, like? finding more vulnerabilities is arguably good. Uh, you know, if we looked at fifteen-year-old software, it would uh, yeah, is that software even deployed? They're finding vulnerabilities, right? And you know, what are they finding? Variable. And what are these vulns? Are these like vulnerabilities um, that require you to be logged in as root or? Local admin and you yeah, know, yeah, that, that's the question that, that so uh, it, by itself it means nothing. You know, it's exactly. uh, without context. Without context, it's is it, as people. I, I don't know if I've talked about it here, but I, one of the pictures I use in some of my slide decks is uh, I've got a picture of a uh, old beat up Ford pickup truck with a crane in the bed, and you can see on the rear bumper, you can very clearly see the Texas the the pro secession Texas bumper sticker on the rusted rear bumper of the truck. And, um, you know, if you assume that that truck is, say, um, outside of Houston, uh, you come to one conclusion. And then when you pull back and you see that it's got a Massachusetts license plate, that context goes from, fuck y'all, we're leaving, to fuck you and stay out, right? So context matters. <laughs> Well, that's the moral picture, of that story. Picture that. There's yeah, an image for you. Take into consideration. Right now, there are more developers out there. There's a lot of more software. There's a lot of more people in the security field right now. that are seeing uh, cash uh, signs everywhere going like, hey, I can make money out of this. If I find enough bugs, I sell these bugs. There are more programs out there. Or, uh, that will pay you uh, uh, or give you notoriety. Uh, they, they will say, hey, make you famous for finding all of these bugs. Uh, right now, bug hunting before was kind of like a no-no. You always yeah, had yeah. to risk a, hey, I'm going to report this to these guys, and I don't know if they're going to take it seriously or throw the lawyers at me. And right now you have companies actually paying for you to find bugs in their stuff. So 
yes, there's going to be uh, a larger amount of vulnerabilities found out there. There are also a lot of more programmers. And as we know, education is shitty. On secure code. Yep. Yeah. So, so Carlos, I think you have a good point. I mean, I think the, the general noise level is is up right now. I think just because of the um, the combination of a lot of facts, right? The, the bug bounty programs for sure. The um, the also the, the even the just the general media interest, right? I mean, we have a lot more um, focus now on what it is um, to be secure as a software product out out there, um, even in general, general public exposure, because we've had very, we've had this string of very, um, public, uh, breaches, um, th this year particularly. And, uh, I think that's raising the, um, visibility level overall. And, uh, I think it's probably raising the interest level as well. So we have a lot more interesting dynamics going on in the industry. So, um, I would come back to saying, as Jack was saying, what is behind the numbers? I mean, that's the key, you know, just to put a stat out there and go, well, 600 of this or 600 of that, um, not good enough. I mean, you know, what what kind of valid research is behind those kinds and, of and, and that is why I love the Verizon report, because when you go to the Verizon reports that they put year after year, you're going to start seeing that the bugs are always the same old bugs. Like, hey, they stole credentials, reuse credentials, uh, lack of patches in the systems. Yeah, um, and you're going to see a bunch of stuff that, even though we see all of these new vulnerabilities coming out, people are still getting popped using ten-year-old techniques out there. And SQL injection is still the number one. If we're going to go into history lessons, I'm going to hijack for a minute. Tangent, although not really. Um, Everybody, buckle in. Uh, I just so those, I've been doing that. Punch cards I mentioned this like three weeks. Uh, punch cards. You know how uh, you know back in my day when we were uh, fuzzing punch cards, what we do is <laughs> we'd uh, come off the golf course and leave our golf shoes on, and we'd walk over the punch cards and feed them in. And that'd fuzz those mainframes, I tell you. Um, you used to use a shotgun. Come on, you didn't use. So in doing the Shoulders of Intosec project, which I talked about a few weeks ago, uh, and it's growing, uh, shout out to uh, Davi Ottenheimer has added a bunch of stuff and uh, trying to fill some stuff in. But uh, And also co-worker uh, Ken Bechtel gave me a, a list of a couple dozen uh, early folks in the antivirus world who um, we like to make fun of antivirus these days. But those guys in the early days actually knew what they were doing. Um, they knew how to code at low level. Um, Anyway, so anyway. one of the folks that I highlight in my talks uh, is Bob Abbott, and um, he led uh, something called the Resos Project, Research into Secure Operating Systems. It was a study from like 71 to 75, 76, and the goal was aiding and understanding security issues in OSs, um, and then trying to figure out how hard it was to enhance security. And the end result of this was distilled into seven bullet points. And I want to read them for you now, and I want you to, everybody listening to remember this is from 19, a, a project a study that ran 71 to 76. So uh, before most of you were born. Um, yep. <sighs> Not to make Seven bullet points. Let's see. The great thing is that 40 something years ago, we've fixed all of these. Number one, incomplete parameter validation. Okay, maybe not all of them. Number two. <laughs> Inconsistent parameter validation. Thanks. 
Number three, implicit sharing of privilege or confidential data. Next. Uh, number four, asynchronous validation and inadequate serialization. Yeah, uh, which, you know, for those of you that aren't coders, that's uh, our race conditions and time to check versus time to use flaws, because we totally nailed that. Um, inadequate identification, authentication, and authorization. Oh, yeah, we got that sorted out. Uh, viable prohibitions and limits, and then exploitable logic errors. So, um, in fairness, it just proves it's a lot easier to define the problem than solve it. But looking at these things, just like, oh, really? This is how far we've come in 40 years. Awesome. We s whatever. <laughs> oh, well, well, wait a minute, Jack. You've you got to give us all a little bit of a break. It's very hard to work on the conditions of a completely moving target, right? I mean, Oh, that's absolutely true. And one of the things that, that has happened between this and the Ware report and a couple of other Anderson report and a couple of other foundational documents is that we went from, you know, they were really worried about moving from single purpose, single user computers to multi-user, multi-threaded and, you know, multi-process or multitasking environments. Exactly. And that was the challenge that they were facing. And now what we've done is we've taken this shift and there are a couple of things that I think are, uh, took us from having theoretical possibility to dramatically improve security to we're screwed. Let's let's plug holes as fast as we can. And, and they're the, the rapid increase in the, the multi-purpose uh, computing, uh, the global interconnectivity. And those two things drove the consumerization of computing, which drove um, consumerization of computing. So the costs are down to where even though last week I was making fun of using Windows for Internet of Things, there's a, a business case to be made because anybody can write for Windows and you use commodity hardware instead of special stuff. And why on earth would you run QNX on special boards or something when I can just, uh, you know, run Windows code? And the answer is it's probably cheaper short term. And as long as, as, long as you're not paying the interest on technical debt, uh, that may be, seem like a good idea until... You get ohm twelve ways, and you have in insecure and unsecurable ATMs and uh, more critical systems. But I think there's that transition point to multi-purpose computing, global interconnectivity, feeding, con oh, consumerization, and commoditization. What I was going to say is, you know, back in the day we had those big computers that ran multiple operating systems. Right, and right. Then we fast forward <laughs> to today. Loop. Wait, we have big. Yeah, we have big. Right. Yes, there, there is yeah, a bad it's example. The, it's the same, right? It's exactly the same, but yep. there's a lot more of them. Yeah, there's a lot the more. Hands of a lot more people Eight. that are not the guys in white Absolutely. coats standing behind Eight. the window taking your punch okay. cards. And, and <laughs> yep. I mean, yep. in the old point, days, John. if you wanted to know who was attached, you grabbed each one of the copper wires coming out of something and followed it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, in some cases, they were going no, a great. really, really long way. Like in the '70s in college, when you were at a community college or, or you know, remote college, and the computer for the university system was. Is at that the when main you went office. to visit your kids in college? <laughs> <laughs> was at the end of a wire. Um, hey, you got my permission. Go ahead and smack it. <laughs> Come on, that I was a good one. I haven't said this in a while, so I'm overdue. You know what? <laughs> You'll be old someday, too, if you're <laughs> lucky. <laughs> Not doing my job unless I deserve that comment. <laughs> <laughs>
I was going to mention. I don't know about Paul, but when I studied, I remember I had to get my time chair in the back on the mainframe to go. Yep. RPG on the backs. Yeah. On the backs. Uh, the NSA has given its blessing under the agency's commercial solutions for classified program meant that the Samsung Galaxy 4, 5, and Galaxy Note 3 and Note 10.1 2014 edition cleared a number of security stipulations and could be used to protect classified data. However, an unnamed researcher this Thursday published a lengthy report that claims a PIN chosen by the user during the setup of the Knox application is stored in clear text on the device, specifically in a file called, get this, pin.xml. Yep. And they found it the day after the NSA gave their blessing. Imagine that. And I thought it was called Get This XML. Oh, wait. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I, I bet you the NSA went like, oh, Ooh, look at this. Crap. Somebody we lost get their the job. Pin. Hmm, let's get everybody to use it. Let's, let's vouch for it. Yeah, somebody <laughs> was drinking heavily that night. <laughs> I have to say, WTF. even though I have nothing but the most respect for the people that work at the NSA, uh, the organization itself, uh, we it has a history of not being the watching for the best interests of securing stuff. Uh, so, so especially when they need to get into it later on. So, when it comes to stuff that is NSA blessed, I'm skeptical of actually using it. There is an article in there: three ways to make your Gmail account safer. Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't use it. The Google <coughs> Google two-factor authentication. The heck do they call that? Um, Google Authenticator. Google Authenticator. Yep. That does not work if you're accessing via uh, IMAP. Correct. Uh, you uh, can actually create uh, an app-specific password, so you right. can use it with your email client. In fact, I use it for my personal account. And for my Google Apps account, I actually use uh, so, but two-factor but that, You can't use two-factor over IMAP. Uh, not over IMAP. I okay. create a specific application password it's for separate, IMAP and yeah. another specific application password for ADM on my Mac. And I select to what it can have access to. So in the case of IMAP, only the emails and contacts. Oh, I see. So you limit your risk. Well, that's good. It's still yep. not two-factor, but better than what I thought. Yeah, yep. exactly, Paul. I was mm. going to say, uh, Carlos is running the money. I mean, it's 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 an unfortunate reality that, that two-factor doesn't work with protocols like that, so they had to do a workaround. However, as Carlos is pointing out, you do limit the risk, and you ca- can create numerous application-specific keys uh, to, to kind of spread that risk out a little. So it's, it's, um, it's not as bad as you think. Mm. Cool. Well, anyway, that article's out there. Make some other pretty good, I guess, good recommendations to enable two-factor, uh, enable those recovery alerts. Um, I like the idea of creating, limiting your risk, as Carlos uh, said. And of course, it tells you when other people um, log in as your account, which is which is not bad either. I'm just concerned about the two-factor not persisting across protocols. Pins that when you open Google Authenticator, you actually have to scroll up or down. Yeah. Um, do you know that 
you're kind of paranoid. Yes. I have them for LastPass, for GitHub, for Dropbox, for for my Windows uh, Live account, for my Gmail, for my Google Apps. For uh, my tenable appliances? I have, quite a bit. have you seen that? No. Uh, nope. <laughs> yeah. If you, uh, tenable appliance uh, password recovery can be sucked into uh, your Google Authenticator now, having just set up uh, some new appliances in the lab. But oh, yeah, nice. I know what you mean. You know, my, my domain registrar, uh, Gandhi, supports uh, Authenticator apps. So, uh, in fact, we're getting strange hands. We're getting, we're getting, I think icon. we're playing baseball because the catcher's making signs. To the they catcher. were. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, closing stories? Uh, as, as often as the case, there are a bunch of good stories, so take a look through them. Uh, some interesting stuff. Um, what was what was there? Job? Rob Graham has some good stuff. As always. Drupal, you're screwed. Drupal, you're screwed. Uh, yeah, there's a post on RDP Replay that Carlos actually tipped me off to, so I threw in my stories. Uh, we didn't talk about mobile carriers tracking you and Twitter using that to do bad things, but you go ahead. And our buddy Anton Chuvakin asks how much you trust your managed security service provider and how much should you, which is, of course, a good question. So that's a yeah, quick rundown. The, the mobile one was uh, particularly Verizon, I think, is, is throwing a cookie under your web traffic and tracking you and using it for yep. targeting advertising and so forth, uh, which is kind of sad. And there's no way you can opt out. Great. Thank you very much, mobile. Right. So that's HTTP and that's HTTP inject. Ken White, I think somebody else's, but Ken White's got a uh, a simple tool. Um, it's linked in the stories there, and it's not just Verizon. They were the first ones that was proven, but I believe T-Mobile's been said to be doing the same thing, and AT and T is, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, uh, pretty straightforward test at lessonslearned.org forward slash sniff if the broadcast uid is not blank somebody's screwing with you um anyway so a lot of folks are doing it and it's it's probably going to continue to be done because there's good money in it and there won't be enough of us paranoid people who complain so https or tunnel out through your whatever so that uh, you get past your carrier yeah it's uh that that one's uh a little bit disturbing in, in, in my mind. And uh, those kinds of practices, I think, need to stop. Yep. Yep. Uh... The problem with the Verizon one is that I actually heard someone that I won't mention from another company actually say, oh, that's cool. I should actually start using that. Uh, yep. Very sad. Okay, that's my closing comments. Excellent. With that, we're going to take a short break, come back, and wrap up the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of Paul's Security Weekly. Our wonderful mixologist, Mr. Jack Daniel, is in here in studio keeping us happy for the show. Joff and Carlos, thank you very much. Chris Crowley, thanks for stopping by. He had to go to a parade, so it's awesome. Happy Halloween, everyone, and we will see everyone next week. 
for Paul's Security Weekly. Jack, take us out. Over and out. Oh, that's it. That was a senior moment in its finest.